I didn't just stop. I stopped cold. I mean, it was, I, I went from full speed ahead to nothing. Yeah. Wow. I mean, your story truly is in an instant. Yeah. Know? I mean, the the moment that those cars collided, my life shifted onto a whole different trajectory. You are listening to Badass, a podcast where we hold authentic conversations about the most difficult experiences life can hold for us. We explore the transformative power of these events and what they teach us about ourselves and the world. I am your host, Mirabai Rose. Welcome to Badass. Today on Badass, we're speaking with Kathleen Weber. Kathleen is a licensed clinical social worker whose career has focused on providing care for those who are aging and struggling with dementia. Kathleen has also provided end-of-life care as a hospice social worker. In response to a need she witnessed again and again for families to have respite care for their loved ones with dementia, she designed and launched the first freestanding adult day program for people with dementia in our community. Then, in 2019, Kathleen's whole life changed in an instant when she sustained a traumatic brain injury in a car accident. Today, Kathleen shares with us the experience of suddenly losing so many of her abilities and her tenacious walk towards wellness. Welcome to Badass, Kathleen. I'm so glad to have you with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I think um, these conversations that you're seeking to have are going to be pretty impactful, and I, I, um, I'm excited to hear who else you talk to, too. So thank you. thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start with that evening in 2019 when everything changed. Okay. What were you doing? I was on the way home from work a little bit after 5, 5.30, something like that. But it had been a day that was really dark and rainy. So one of those winter Indiana dark rainy days that was just pouring down all day long. Mm -hmm. And I was driving home through town, headed for the bypass, and... As I went past an intersection, somebody we think ran a stop sign um, based on a number of factors. But long story short, I got T-boned in the driver's side, oh. um, and it pushed me across a couple of lanes of traffic. And the driver got out of the car. He said he thought he was all right. I thought I was okay. I had my seatbelt on. I you know, the car didn't flip around. I was able to pilot the car to a stop. I was able to call 911. I called my husband to tell him I'd been in an accident and approximately where I was. And the first officer on the scene was primarily focused on directing traffic mm -hmm. around the situation. But immediately, the first thing he did was check with me um, and he had me roll down my window and he said, are you okay? Do you need um, an ambulance? And I said, no, I think I'm okay. But something in the way I answered him must have triggered him because he said, I'm going to call an ambulance. Mm -hmm. And so I sat, he told me to stay in the car. Um, it was pouring down rain. So I stayed in the vehicle. And when the, what happened next is I, so I was waiting on the ambulance, waiting on whatever needed to happen next. And 
I remember thinking I should be just coursing with adrenaline right now. Mm -hmm. And all I want to do is go to sleep. Mm. And the healthcare social worker in me just, there was nothing clear, but my gut was like, oh shit, I don't think that's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, th- but that's the only sense of it that I had. So the first ENT, EMT on the scene got into the passenger side of my car with me. Um, and she asked me a lot of questions and I was able to answer those questions. Um, I felt fuzzy in retrospect. I felt fuzzy, but at the time, you know, I felt like I was doing all right. Um, The fire department arrived and they wanted um, me to get out of the car. And she said, can you, you know, walk yourself to the ambulance? And I said, yeah, I think I can do that. No problem. Um, She had already determined using whatever evaluative, you know, strategy she used that I needed to be seen. And I started to step out of or open the door to step out of my vehicle. And there were several fire department um, members there and my window was down. And one of them reached his body kind of through my window and said, don't move and let Mm. us get you out. And I thought, well, that's weird. And I was like, okay. So I sat there and what I didn't realize that they could see and I understood later was that um, what my car looked like from the outside is what triggered the officer to call an ambulance because I guess they have a formulary for what like a trauma Uh looks like. And from the damage to the vehicle, he he made that call. Mm -hmm. He knew that there was a big impact. Right. Yeah. And so the um, fire department, um, everybody that helped was just lovely. But this gentleman was in his, you know, big heavy coat. They were in all of their gear. And he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to reach in front of you and I'm going to kind of lean over you really carefully. And then we're going to get you out. So um, they had to pry the door open. Mm. They could see from the outside. I you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to open the door. I just didn't know that because mm-hmm. I was kind of in this little cocoon inside. But what he was also doing is using his body to separate me and protect me from the steering wheel because they did not want the airbag to deploy in my chest and face when the door was pried open because they thought there was a good chance that it could go off. Right. And because it was a side impact, the particular vehicle that I had didn't have curtain airbags. Um, and so none of the airbags had gone off because of the way that impact, you know, hit. So I walked myself to the ambulance, um, and got in and immediately, um, the bright lights in the ambulance. I mean, it was, it just felt like I was on the surface of the sun and it just hurt. Mm. It visually just hurt. I had no sense at the time that, um, anything was really wrong. I was just kind of responding in the moment. They took me to the hospital. Um, They took me to a trauma room and there was just, I mean, there were people everywhere all around me. I was on this gurney um, that they wheeled me in from the ambulance and um, they started to um, mobilize to do a lot of things to move me from the gurney onto like a hospital bed. 
And I kind of panicked. I'm a big person. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it's not that I don't trust my colleagues, but I don't trust my colleagues. Like, it's just a lot. And I said, you know, I can move myself. And everybody, I, and I said, I just said, stop, actually, is what I said. I said, stop. And everybody in the room stopped and everybody took their hands off me. I so appreciated that. I said, I can move myself. And the um, trauma doctor said, can you bear weight? And I said, well, I walked myself to the ambulance. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> guessing that's a yes. And um, I stood up. They, she said, I'm, I'm, we need to get a neck collar on you. But I still had, you know, a coat and clothes and all this stuff on. And she said, let's help you stand up without moving your neck or shoulders let us undress you, just stand there. And then we need to get a neck collar on you like ASAP. So they did that. Um, and there were a few jokes about they were, the nurses were glad they didn't have to cut through my expensive bra. Mm. And I was happy about that as well. So there mm -hmm. was a little humor in the room. Um, that probably helped with how vulnerable you must have it been. It did. Feeling. I just, it, I, it was also, everybody was so helpful and so nice. And I was just, um, I mean, both out of it and also like present and able to answer questions, but it was all kind of blurry, mm -hmm. right? Um, they took CT scans, they took x-rays, they checked me out from head to toe. In the meantime, um, my husband arrived um, he couldn't get close enough to the accident scene, so he just followed me to the hospital. And then the policeman who was the first on the scene um, that did the accident report also came to the hospital to talk with me and John and to explain kind of what he was going to put in the report and clarify some things. And then I was sent home on concussion protocol. So it was, you know, probably 5.45 when the accident happened. So now it's like, what, 10 or 11 at night mm -hmm. and we're going home. And we were both exhausted. And so I just thought, okay, concussion protocol. And the, the truth is we were both tired. Nothing hurt at that point. Mm -hmm. Nothing was fractured. Nothing was broken. I thought, okay, concussion protocol, you know, let's just go home and sleep is kind of where we both were, yeah. right? And had they found something on one of the scans that confirmed that it was a concussion or how did they figure that out? Well, it actually started becoming really clear the next morning. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, the next morning I woke up and I was just getting, John was already up and I got up and my brother called because he had heard from my mom that, you know, I was in an accident and he wanted to check and see how I was, how the car was, what was going on. And he started asking me a lot of questions. And I remember thinking, I can understand everything he's saying. I have answers to all of that. But my brain was in complete slow-mo. Mm -hmm. And I could not get thoughts put together and words aligned to answer the things that he was asking. Mm. And at the time, still, it none of this, I'm just telling you what happened. I, I didn't even have insight into it at that, in right. those moments, right? Um, 
I got off the side of the bed and I walked to the laundry room because John was doing some laundry and I just handed him the phone um, and I just said, you know, like I used hand motions, right? Like, mm -hmm. here's the phone, you take the call and I just went back to bed. So um, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that um, my language was really affected. I was really having trouble just walking. Um, mm. Kind of walked like a drunk. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't quite get a straight line and I wasn't dizzy. I just couldn't walk a straight line. I was kind of boffing off the walls. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't know what was wrong with my vision, but something was wrong. And I could not stay awake. I would be awake for a very short period of time, not really accomplish anything, just be awake. And it was like the effort of just being awake and up was so exhausting that I had to just go back to bed. Wow. So we pretty quickly were like, okay, we need to figure this out. I the nurse practitioner who at the time was in charge of the trauma team at the hospital um, also had a concussion clinic. Mm -hmm. And so we had um, Lindsay's name and number and I, um, I can't remember John did it. I did it. I don't know. We made an appointment and we saw her a few days later. And that's when we really understood, okay, there's some things going on here. I just had all these, I was like, well, this is happening and this is happening. And John talked with her, we went together and I had a condition called nystagmus. So when I would focus my eyes on an object, my eyes would continue to wobble. Mm. And that was the vision issue that yeah. was happening. And what one of the things that was causing those balance problems, mm. because the world was moving, right? It right. just wasn't stopping to move. So um, that's kind of where the whole thing started. We started with a couple of referrals. We had to start getting a grip on, you know, what were the extent of my injuries? What did I what are the what were the things in my control mm -hmm. to do, which was, you know, um, largely stay off of electronics. Um, don't read, don't, I mean, it was all like global things. <laughs> like, you know, I, I could just be quiet. I could listen to music, things like that, but they didn't really want me trying to read um, or do, you know, fine, fine things, mm -hmm. um, these kinds of things. And that's kind of where we started. Um, so a few weeks later, a few friends came over that are, um, I will say, I am blessed with a deep bench of amazing, kind, talented, smart people. And um, my friend Marsha had been really helpful. She's a social worker, and she pulled together a couple of other friends, and they just came one evening, and Marsha brought dinner. And the five of us sat around our dining room table and they said, okay, you, you tell us, you know, what's going on, what's working with you, what's not. And so I did that. 
and they said, okay, you're tired and you've talked enough. (laughs) And they all just shifted to John and they said, how are you? Mm. What's going on with you? What do you need? And God, I was so grateful for that. I mean, I was so grateful for that support um, for my husband because he went from having this like workaholic wife to just having a wife that was in bed and couldn't answer questions. Mm -hmm. So we just were navigating things, um, trying to figure out the next right thing. I will say our healthcare system is so broken. Yes. I probably needed a neurologist and it took me 11 months to get into a neurologist. Kathleen, So everything that I had was a function of Lindsay Fields writing orders, who was the nurse practitioner. And I have an amazing GP who I just can't say enough about. Um, And so between her and between um, Chuck Rose, um, I got referrals to, you know, the things that I needed to Mm -hmm. get started on. And so about eight weeks post-accident, I started speech therapy and occupational therapy. And um, somewhere in there, I also started chiropractic because I had a wicked case of whiplash mm-hmm. and some back and neck stuff. Um, mm-hmm. The day I started speech therapy and they did the evaluation, my um, verbal fluency it was 13%. Oh, wow. So, and I mean, Maribai, you know me. Yes. And I'm a, I mean, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm in the community all the time. I do, I counsel people for a living. I do community programming. I mean, my communication skills are my career. Yes. And you're particularly eloquent. <laughs> so, sometimes. Um, and that was really devastating. I bet. I was abs- I was just shocked. I was stunned. I thought, what the hell is this? So we started at the very beginning um, in occupational therapy. We were focusing on um, visual tracking. Um, I had a thing called a Brock string, which is a really long string with the little, you know, the big wooden beads we used to make necklaces out of mm-hmm. when we were kids. Yeah. So, um, Rachel had those strung along a line and I would hold it from my nose, like kind of out straight. And I would focus on the bead closest to me uh-huh. and then the next bead and then the bead furthest away. And it was maybe three feet long, something like that. And I practiced that lots of times a day till I was just, you know, tired. I would tire very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, picking out letters, trying to actually read a recipe. And um, I spent weeks with several decks of cards and we started in speech therapy with, they would show me a playing card and then they would set it down and I had to tell them what suit it was or what color, you know, it was. Mm -hmm. And then we added, you know, what, was the, you know, was it a face card or a a number card? And 
you would think, I mean, that's just a silly memory game that we play with our friends when we're kids, you know, mm -hmm. just whatever, on a car ride to pass the time. I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I It was so hard. It was like, you might as well ask me, you know, to analyze a stock index. I had such a struggle with that. And it took a long time um, of just little small things like that mm -hmm. to start to pull back together. I couldn't cook. I'm a good cook. I, we cook a lot. And to put a recipe together was not even something I could consider. I would walk downstairs in the morning, make my way to the kitchen. John would have left for work. And I, for a number of weeks, actually more like months, I, I couldn't even make tea and toast at mm. the same time. Like I could make toast and then sit at the dining room table and eat it. And then I would have to go take a nap. And then I could come back later after I rested and make hot tea. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was so crazy. The cognitive fatigue was incredible. Mm. Um, just the little amount of, you know, doing something small and it was back for a three or four hour nap. And it wasn't just a tired, and I still have this cognitive fatigue, it's better. But it's not like, oh, I'm tired, I need to go to sleep. It's a, I have to stop now, my brain is stopping, it's not, my brain is not working and I'm gonna black out. It's mm -hmm. a, it's such a exhausted place yes. that I have learned to stop at a certain point. Yes. Um, and it used to be I didn't stop till I was tired because I didn't always know when that was going to come. And now mm -hmm. I'm better at like, I'm not tired yet, but I'm, I've been doing this for so long. Now mm -hmm. I need to stop. Now I need to space myself out. Mm -hmm. So yeah, occupational therapy, um, physical therapy, chiropractic, um, speech therapy, and eventually um, driving rehabilitation. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, so. I was just thinking about all the, the ways in which your personal identity was impacted by this, right? Mm -hmm. We all have these things that, you know, I'm good at cooking and I'm a good partner and I'm a good communicator and I'm, you know, and then all of a sudden in an instant, oh, all of that is gone. Complete shift. Life is so different. Um, you know, I did rehab for almost a year. I was just starting to get, you know, back to work a little and start back into strategic planning because we just lost so much ground, you know, while I was out. And let right, me because you had a business. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mentioned at the beginning I had you'd my started the care center, but yeah, two businesses. You were and you were still trying to keep these going during this time. Correct. Yeah. And that never would have happened without um an amazing staff, but most specifically Abby Baldwin, my assistant director at Better Day Club. She's just an amazing young woman. Mm -hmm. um, and I had tried for years to download my brain into her. And um, and I mean, you know me, I'm extroverted, I'm outgoing. Abby's the complete opposite. And her ability to focus on details and care for our club members was just extraordinary. Mm. 
Um, but it meant that all the outward facing stuff wasn't going to get done yeah. for the time I was away. Um, she had tons of work to do. Um, she would call me and say, okay, um, you know, I've got a list and she would prioritize the list of things she needed. And she literally would time our phone call. She'd say, okay, Kathleen, we've been talking for 11 minutes. I can see that you're starting to get tired. So let's stop here and we'll do the rest of this list some other time. Wow. And most of the time she just made decisions and the, I know the worry and the anxiety that she would not do it my way or not do it. Um, I totally trusted her, but um, that was just hard because we were a team and suddenly she's, you know, in charge. It's so hard to be really, truly dependent on other people, you know, so hard. It's so hard. And it actually got harder kind of midway through rehab than it did in the beginning, because in the beginning, I was just kind of out to lunch. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just hazy and fuzzy, and it was all I could do to, like, get up and get dressed mm -hmm. and try to function a little bit. I literally had no extra room to think much about what was happening at work or anything else. Looking back, it's kind of hard to explain because, you know, I'm a person who reads the room and wants to hold up my end and wants to make sure things are going okay and, you know, get programs off the ground and do all of this stuff. And just none of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, just none of that was on my mind. And yeah. when I look back, I'm like, oh, yeah, I was hurt. You, you know, were. and in survival mode. For sure. Oh, 100%. Yeah. 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 And it is strange with cognitive uh, injuries and illnesses, how there is a level of unawareness, you know, mm -hmm. a level of truly not knowing. Yeah. <laughs> not knowing that you're misspeaking or that, you know, stuff is going on around you that you should be tuned into. It's so strange in those moments where things click into place for just a few seconds and you're like, oh my God, there are so many things that I am unaware of. Right? That is crazy. Like, I mean, as social workers, like we're all about person and environment, right? So we're constantly, I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, I work with people with dementia. So I'm constantly scanning environment, you know, fall hazards, chairs, what does background noise look like for people? How do we help people focus and use their, you know, best resources without getting pulled in all these other directions and seeing that person as a whole person? And I was just this little pinhole, you know, myopic focused, just trying to, you know, eat dinner and pet a cat and then take a nap. I mean, yeah. it was crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So after six months, you started to become a little more aware. Mm -hmm. But I imagine that that was also pretty, I mean, probably more painful. It um, was, it, it got more scary, I think, um, in some ways. Um, there was a period of time in there that fear started to really set in. Like, what if I don't get better? What if aphasia or this word finding issue is like my new normal? What does yeah. that mean for my work? Yeah. Uh, what does that mean for my life? Just all the parts of me that felt so essential at the time. 
were put on ice. I mean, just Mm -hmm. it was all a hurry up and wait. And no one could tell me how long it could take. No one could tell me if the things we were doing, you know, would for sure help. Yeah. There were just so many unknowns. You know, we figured kind of early on as we saw kind of what a mess I was in that we needed to get um, a personal injury attorney, which made me sick to do, but it was absolutely Mm -hmm. the right decision in retrospect. Because the driver had actually denied responsibility. Yeah, it was also weird. And, you know, and now that all of that settled, I'm sure that doesn't really play that big of a role, but at the time it did in my decision to want part of my decision to get an attorney Mm -hmm. um, because at the scene, the officer that wrote the report and did the investigation was very clear with us that the other driver was the at-fault driver. And I mean, just everything about the accident, that was really pretty evident. Um, And then... At some point along the way, we came into the knowledge that the driver had told his insurance company that um, I was that fault driver. And of course, they had the police report and all of that. Mm. And I just, man, I was, Mirabai, I was so mad. I bet. (laughs) I was so angry. I just, that felt so... Oh, so wrong on so many levels, right? Like, I just, I would have been so ill. I couldn't even wrap my brain around if I had caused this to happen to someone else. Mirabai, I would have been sick. I mean, I just can't even imagine that. Yeah. And I would like to think that my response to that would be to tell my insurance company to do everything they could for that individual. And the fact that he denied responsibility just lit something inside of me that, you know, I've pretty well made peace with it now, but at the time I was like, this just, no. Like if this is how you need it to be, then we have got to advocate for ourselves. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's so hard when somebody hurts you and then they do not take accountability. Yeah, it was a it was a hard road. So I feel like, you know, we're three about three and a half years out. We just finally signed all the paperwork and settled all of the lawsuit and insurance and medical claim stuff um, the first week of May. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> it's been a haul. Um yeah, so lose speech, regain speech, um, you know, figure out how to walk. Um, I can't even tell you how many pairs of glasses. I I lost count at some point on the number of glasses that we've been through to, as we use one kind of corrective lens and then we have to do something else and you know, we have to keep moving that forward. Mm-hmm. And then I'm still in physical therapy. I just started another round of physical therapy mm-hmm. um, to help with a few things. And so I'm better. I'm right. I'm so much better than where we started. The insurance resolution, um, you know, because 
both his policy and our policy was capped. Um, there was only a certain amount available. So mm-hmm. um, what we now have is um, some assets that we have got to really wisely manage and mm-hmm. make them stretch as far as possible right? Um, to make up for what is going to be a continued and ongoing, you know, change of life for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So I'm super... Um, I'm super grateful to be where I am. I feel like we've had such great support all along um, and not just support for me, but support for John. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many friends volunteered to, you know, drive me around to all of these endless rehab appointments and, you know, attend appointments and take notes for Mm -hmm. me. And, you know, people brought food, people helped with projects at work, mm-hmm. um, people checked in with Abby to support her and, you know, just made themselves available to us in so many ways that I'll never be able to list them all. Mm-hmm. And um, I have so much gratitude for all of that. And I um I married the most amazing partner. I lucked out so hard, Mirabai. I do not know how throughout this whole thing, he has never had a short temper with me. He's never said a cross word. Wow. I, I mean, and I, and I mean that sincerely. Like yeah. sometimes I actually worry about him because I'm like this, I know how much it takes, mm-hmm. but he has never once made me feel guilty about mm-hmm. it or make me feel like I am putting more on him I feel guilty about it. Yeah. But I just know I I just know I wouldn't be the same way. I just know. You know what strikes me is that, you know, I've known you as a social worker and seen you in action and I've seen the kind of respectful, compassionate care that you mm-hmm. give people. And I'm hearing that your husband was really able to give you this very respectful and compassionate and kind care. Mm. And it just makes me think about how kind of full circle that is, you know, that you've given that care throughout your career. Mm. And I'm so, so glad that you were able to get that kind of care oh my gosh. from your partner. It's, he's just been, he's just so solid. He's just so solid. And um, he just stays the course and I get my wings flapping and he just stays the course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and, a real anchor for you. Yeah, we we are a good team. We're a good team. Um, it's been it's been a long haul, and you know nothing. You know, I always say about Alzheimer's, it's never just Alzheimer's, and it's the same way with this. It's never just you know a concussion or post concussion syndrome. The rest of life keeps moving. Mm-hmm. So you know, we've also had aging parents. Um, John's both of his parents, you know, last year, um, unfortunately, even with vaccines, got COVID Mm. and his dad passed away. So there's been plenty of things, you know, on our plate and plenty of things to take care of. But what I most come back to over and over is healing and gratitude. Mm -hmm. I mean, and those are really genuine, like they're anchored into my being. Mm -hmm. I've been so frustrated with so much of this recovery process, things have been so hard and so painful. And at the same time, I mean, Mirabai, I'm able to sit and have this conversation with you. Yes, and you're doing great. Right? But um, 
there have been some real gifts in this. Um, life has gotten a lot slower mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I did rehab and was just getting started really digging back into work right about when COVID hit. Mm. And of course, that just brought everything to a grinding halt. Mm-hmm. So there's just been, you know, really three, three and a half years of a lot of a lot of change and shifting. Um, I've had a lot of physical healing and emotional healing work to do. Yeah. Um, a lot of grief around physical changes, uh-huh. around life goal changes. Mm-hmm. I was not going to cry. <laughs> I have makes tissues me frustrated. Right <laughs> I know you do. You're such a good social worker. Um, I miss social work. Yeah. You know, I still do some things on a low level, but oh my gosh, I miss working pe- with people with dementia. Yeah. I adore the families that I have worked with. I'm what an incredible, like, blessing and, um, you know, to have these incredible teachers and wise souls with just vast life experience and wisdom and, oh my God, some of the most horrible jokes you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> you know, just, I just miss doing that. It's, it's exhausting. It's wonderful, rewarding work, but it's exhausting on a good day. Mm-hmm. And, um, I really just don't have it most days anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a reality when you have had a life-changing illness or injury where, you know, you have true limitations. True limitations, right? Yeah. 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 It's not about a choice. It's not, Mm -mm. it's not, you know. There's no push through anymore. Mm -mm. I think that for me has been one of the most challenging things to come face to face with. Mm -hmm. And you understand this too, because you're living with a chronic condition and it does not give you a choice. Yeah. I used to be able to say, I'm exhausted, but I've got to finish this presentation and I just need another 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Or I've been at work all week and I'm completely toast, but there's a couple things that I want to get done because Monday's going to be crazy right. and I'm just going to stay and get these things done and then I'm going to go home and crash. You know, it's that pushing yourself just a little beyond mm-hmm. um, or a lot beyond sometimes. Mm-hmm. Which and, you might have been doing, right? Uh, not might. I did. I was yeah. a hardcore workaholic, never stop, mm-hmm. go, go, go kind of a person. Yeah. And um, I think for me, that has made this even harder, Mm -hmm. at least initially, um, because, I mean, I didn't just stop. I stopped cold. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, I I went from full speed ahead to nothing. Yeah. Wow. Your story truly is in an instant. Yeah. I mean, the, the moment that those cars collided, my life shifted onto a whole different trajectory. Mm-hmm. And if, I mean, that's the story. It has opened up a lot of space in my life mm-hmm. to work on healing and to work on projects and to work on me and mm-hmm. um, things that I continued to put on the back burner and not get done because I was, you know, doing all the other things. Mm-hmm. 
despite uh, living with a brain injury and, you know, with this post-concussion syndrome, I am probably more well than I've been in a really long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that there is a truth around when you absolutely forced to stop and to, to heal, you know, to take care of yourself, that it does bring with it a practice of self-care that mm. so many of us really struggle to have unless we're forced to do it. Uh, and it sounds like you have found a practice of self-care where you really, I mean, you have to <laughs> prioritize <laughs> yourself. I do, yeah. Um, but but there may be some real beautiful moments in that too. Absolutely. I mean, I art has been a really healing modality for me in this, um, you know, from everything from kind of bilateral stimulation and yoga nidra to um, anything that helped me connect my brain and, you know, visual focus. Mm -hmm. So I've done a lot of um, coloring, a lot of oil pastels, a lot of, you know, things like that, that help with that kind of hand eye kind of things. And, um, I've always loved to do art and I just never created space for it. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's actually been, um, part of my, you know, quote unquote work Mm -hmm. to really do that. Um, we have kind of realigned how we do, you know, meal planning and cooking, (laughs) um, and, um, you know, keeping things a lot more simple. Um, And I've had more time for conversations with people, Mm -hmm. um, which has been nice. And um, I've just been able to kind of self-actualize in some other parts of my life. So I had this really amazing, I always think of this really super strong overdeveloped bicep that uh-huh. said social worker, Yes, <laughs> you know, right? Yes. That it was almost like this Popeye arm that would like bend you over. And yes. um, that is sort of how I have always rolled. And I'm just a lot more integrated uh-huh. um, across a lot of domains as the result of having some of that space to um, pursue and to just find, you know, new opportunities and develop new coping strategies. So I say sometimes lately that um, I'm better. I'm not always sure from day to day if it's because I'm actually getting better or my coping strategies are better. Mm -hmm. But either way, I'm better. Yeah. So I'll take it. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I was thinking as I was approaching today in this interview that, you know, you're somebody who the word badass has already (laughs) like come to me before, you know, before your accident, just knowing you and, you know, you have always struck me as such a badass. Um, But I, you know, I think you were really using that badass energy for others. I was, yeah. You know, and now it seems like you're using that badass energy for yourself. I did not... um... I I very rarely, if ever, used it for myself. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole different podcast. That's probably a Brene Brown podcast. <laughs> um, but um, I had to uh, 
reorient, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, I really had to change a lot of that. And that's been okay. But also, you know, depression and PTSD and anxiety and all the other things that, you know, have been triggered with this are significant. And they are also part of the body of injury here, right? absolutely. And we all know that mental health has a stigma. We all, I mean, ask any person with dementia or their families if dementia has a stigma. Yes, it does. We know, so we know that any cognitive change or decline, right, has stigma. Absolutely. And um, I just want to say, you know, talk about it. Yes. There's nothing wrong with it. Life is hard. It throws lots of things at us. If they told us this when we were kids, we would never grow up. (laughs) Yes. Uh, we didn't actually believe the adults who tried to tell us because we were invincible. <laughs> oh, right? don't we learn. <laughs> don't we learn? Adulting is hard. Um, oh, my gosh. So I just um, I just feel like it doesn't do anybody any favors to not talk about it. Mm-hmm. And it certainly doesn't do me any favors. Yeah. Talking about it helps me heal. It helps me be an advocate, hopefully maybe for other people. Yes. So I'm, I know how grateful I am. And I also know how important it is to advocate for other people. Yeah, absolutely. Which is one of the things you're doing by doing this podcast, (laughs) which is pretty awesome. It's pretty badass too, Maribai. Well, thank you. I'm just really grateful that you're willing to be here and shedding some light on this. And I hope if anyone's out there listening who has lived through a traumatic brain injury or has a loved one living with a traumatic brain injury, that you also feel as if, you know, you have a connection and your story is important. Yeah. Kathleen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for doing this. It was really nice to talk with you today. It was fun to be here with you. It was fun to see you in post-COVID face-to-face, like in all your Mirabai awesomeness. Oh, (laughs) you too, dear. Hello, badass listeners. Today on Behind the Curtain, we are talking with Jean Kapler. Jean is the local support network leader for Southern Indiana for the Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana. Jean has had a long and storied career as a licensed clinical social worker, working both for -for not-for-profit agencies and as a private practice therapist for many years. Jean has also been a strong advocate for the LGBTQ plus community and stays very politically active. Jean was named Woman of the Year by the City of Bloomington in 2016 for all the good work she does in our state. Currently, Jean lives in Bloomington with her wife, Jenny Austin. Hi, Jean. Welcome to Badass. Thanks, Baron Bry. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. I would like to start by asking you to explain a little bit to our listeners about traumatic brain injury. In our last segment, we heard from a woman who had a traumatic brain injury in a sudden and unexpected accident and has had a very long 
recovery from that. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it would be helpful for our listeners to understand what that really means. What is a traumatic brain injury? And when someone gets a traumatic brain injury, what is happening inside of their brain? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so when someone experiences a traumatic brain injury, that's by definition caused by uh, an external force or a blow to the head. Um, and when that force passes through our brains, you know, our brains operate through connection, through communication and connection between one neuron and the next and the next. And we have these little information superhighways in, in our brains that allow us to form our thoughts, um, uh, regulate our emotions, um, think about what we want to do or what we want to say, and then put that into action. Um, and so when a force disrupts the connections between those neurons, it's sort of like getting a pothole in your information superhighway. Mm. It might be a small pothole. Maybe a few neurons got disconnected or maybe even a couple of neurons died. Or it could be a great big gigantic pothole that takes up both lanes and completely stops that transmission, that traffic down that highway. Mm -hmm. um, and so all that the abilities that are uh, passing through that highway stop. And so there's physical damage to the brain that happens with a, a TBI. Um, so interruptions and connections, uh, cell death even. Uh, but then there are also a whole host of neurochemical changes that happen that over time ideally should even out. Um, but sometimes what we find is that um, some neurotransmitters are disrupted in that area long term as well. And you're talking about things like serotonin mm, and yeah, dopamine, yeah. the things that can make us feel happy or calm. Yes, exactly. And so what we find is that for folks with uh, traumatic brain injuries or any a lot of other kinds of acquired brain injuries that aren't caused by that external force. Um, for those folks, you know, after TBI, something like 60% of people experience um, uh, depressive episodes, anxiety. Um, and uh, these are in folks that weren't having issues with that before. And it is hard to live with a traumatic brain injury in the aftermath of that. So that's some major stress. That could cause depression. But what we see is that um, oftentimes there are neurotransmitter problems as well. And so sometimes medication is really helpful after brain injury. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine, you know, as you're describing all these functions that the brain normally does for us being disrupted, that that's translating into people having difficulty with speech and movement and mood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that would have such an impact on someone's life. What, what does that yeah. look like? Yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. And, um, I will say that in both my role now, uh, working with folks who've had uh, brain injuries and are, you know, maybe looking at how to return to work um, or finish out their schooling, uh, and in my experience as a clinical social worker in my private practice, one of my specialties was working with folks with brain injuries. I think this is one of the most challenging uh, experiences for humans to to navigate. Mm 
because the ramifications can be so widespread in our functioning. Um, so there are some some common uh, uh, impairments and struggles that can happen after a brain injury, but really and truly every brain injury you, is unique. So if you've seen one brain injury, you've seen one brain injury, you know. Um, so some things that commonly occur can include problems with short-term memory. So you can remember, you know, your life and events from your life, but you can't remember that conversation you had five minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Or it might be difficulty focusing, and that's actually one of the most frequently affected um, uh, areas of, of functioning is, is focus and attention uh, because it involves so many different parts of the brain. So an injury anywhere can mess up your focus. Um so it's really tough to go to work and focus on what you're supposed to be doing when the email notification pops up or, you know, someone interrupts you and try or just even screening out background noise can be really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, reading, communication, putting into words what you want to say, but also really understanding what somebody else is saying to you. Sometimes those circuits in the brain can be affected. Um, one of the the really tough areas of the brain to have an injury in would be the frontal lobes, um, which is where all of our executive functioning sits. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, you know, if you think about a, an executive in an organization, you know, that person may need to be able to prioritize tasks, be able to sort through lots of different information and focus in on what's important, um, might be in a meeting with a bunch of other people and something said and they might get angry, but they can't just like punch a hole in the wall or, you know, fly off the handle verbally. They have to like be able to moderate their emotions, um, be aware of their performance as they're interacting with people and am I being appropriate? Is it okay to say this or is that in poor taste? Mm-hmm. Um, just you know, being able to keep yourself on task. Um, and when those kinds of functions are disrupted, that's really where people end up in trouble, especially at the job, but in other parts of their life, keeping track of bills that need to be paid and multitasking at home. And, you know, um, it really impairs people's ability to do what they want to do in their life. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, there's all of these things. There are some physical effects. Fatigue is huge after brain injury. Um, uh, People talk about, you know, I'm good for the first two or three hours of the day, and then I got to take a nap, especially if I do anything in those hours. Yes, Um, yes. Our guest was sharing that um, when she was first, very first recovering, that her her energy was so limited that she could get up in the morning and she could either make a cup of tea or she could make a piece of toast. Mm-hmm. But she couldn't do both. Mm-hmm. That would be too much energy. Yeah. And then after one or the other, she had to go back to bed. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense because, number one, your brain is having to work a lot harder to get everything done when a lot of different pathways may have been disrupted because of the the injury. And 
then neurochemically your brain isn't at its best either. And our energy levels are somewhat governed by our brain chemistry as well. Mm -hmm. And so... And then people just get exhausted from the challenges of living with it, too. <laughs> you yes. know? So you put all that together, and I'm amazed that folks can do what they do after a brain injury. Yeah. You know? Now, most of the time that gets better over time, um, but it's something that people have to consciously be aware of, kind of lifelong, like, where's my energy level at? So this is this a day I need to maybe take it a little more easy? Um, or looking at your schedule and was yesterday packed with stuff, and so today needs to be a, a slow day, you know? So. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot about, you know, that ripple effect on people's families, Mm -hmm. You know, brain brain injuries are so sudden, right? An injury is something that just happens mm -hmm. in an instant and it changes everything. And uh, I think about, you know, somebody who's been living a life as a, you know, supportive parent and a working person. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, they're just not able to do yeah. those things. And, and the impact that that would have on people's kids and partners and... You know, I think anyone in any kind of position in a family were they to suddenly be so impacted mm -hmm. by something, it would just have a devastating effect on a family. Oh, it's it's huge. You know, so the injury itself happens to a person, but the brain injury as a whole is really a family affair. Um, so, you know, uh, I'll give you a personal example. Uh, when I was in college. Uh, my dad had a pretty significant stroke. Uh, after the stroke, he was paralyzed on the left side. Um, he had some communication issues. Uh, he wasn't able to, like, think of a plan and put it in place and figure out a way to get it done, you know. Um, I, and at that, from that point on, he didn't work anymore. Uh, he eventually got into disability. Uh, we had home health coming in to help take care of him at first, but, you know, that can be really challenging as well with staff yeah. turnover and financing for that. And, and so my sister and I ended up uh, doing a lot of the care for him. But, you know, the dad that I knew, um, who he was, his way of interacting with me, uh, how I could go to him for support, changed. He wasn't able to do that anymore. I knew he still loved me and I still loved him. But I really, all of us had to go through a grieving process, yes. grieving the person that we knew. Now, his stroke really uh, had major effects in every aspect of his functioning. Um, a lot of folks they have a mild traumatic brain injury concussion. It can have some pretty significant effects, and it can stress the person out, but they may not experience much personality change. Mm -hmm. But when that does happen, and it can happen after a brain injury, that's one of the hardest things for families to cope with. Um, a person who can't process all the emotional information their spouse may give, be giving them by facial expressions, by tears, by body language, and their words, and they're not able to process it and make sense of it so they don't respond like they even get it, 
mm-hmm. you know. And that leaves a spouse feeling unloved and lonely and solo in the relationship. Sometimes a person can't um, be there attentively, uh, attentively to their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so roles in the family shift, um, uh, you know, uh, Couples kind of develop a rhythm of how they run their household and who does what and who is really good at taking the spiders out or whatever. And suddenly that has to shift. Um, It's just huge. But the emotional uh, ramifications are, I think, some of the the biggest in uh, having difficulty connecting with a person after brain injury. Uh, having them not be able to be there as a support to you as much. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, and then, you know, the practical concerns, the financial changes in a family when one person's income is completely gone and now there are additional medical bills and additional stresses of navigating medical systems and uh, rehab therapies and working out transportation. And, I mean, the stressors are just huge. So I, I am a huge believer in supporting not only the person who's had the brain injury but their family members as well, uh, educating them so that they understand what they're seeing in their loved one. Mm-hmm. They understand how to interpret it, that it's not that they stopped loving you, it's that they can't process this emotion stuff yes. right now. Yeah. So. I bet that is really important. Yeah. 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 Oh, so much for people to take in. And it is really challenging. Of. Yeah. 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 You know, I've also, you know, read a few articles about veterans and, you know, the level of traumatic brain injury mm-hmm. that veterans have experienced. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just thinking about, you know, my my modality or what I do for a living is mostly working with trauma. So I work with a lot of PTSD mm-hmm. and just that combination mm-hmm. of post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are both things that cause a great deal of emotional dysregulation. Oh, absolutely. I can imagine together. Wow. Well, and they go together so often. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a thing, whether it's in veterans or whether it's the the person who got their TBI from an assault. We see it a lot in women in domestic violence situations where there's a a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder, um, but also brain injury. And it can be really difficult to tease those things apart. I don't always know that it's necessary to completely tease those apart. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, it's about finding what can help. And so if a person can be working with a psychotherapist to address the emotional ramifications of the trauma, as well as working, let's say, with a, um, a speech therapist who does cognitive rehabilitation therapy to help the brain begin to heal a little more, to sort of um, entice it to build little uh, detours around those potholes in the information superhighway. So your brain's functioning better and, and also learning alternative strategies. You put those two together and things start to improve. Um, so yeah, and you know, in veterans, we, we see PTSD, we see brain injury, traumatic brain injury, and, um, 
that's all happening within a culture that still to a large extent uh, stigmatizes asking for help, mm-hmm. stigmatizes any mental health issues like PTSD. Yeah, and, vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. And I think our systems are starting to recognize brain injury a little more. Mm-hmm. But I am still amazed at how often brain injury is overlooked mm-hmm. and how people have been living for years trying to get their life back on track after that really bad car wreck or finally left that abusive relationship and and feel like any issues they're having must be the PTSD, but there's brain injury stuff going on too. Mm-hmm. And most of their providers don't even understand that they've had a brain injury. The person doesn't even recognize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's like this one... Uh, it's sort of like a person just keeps getting stuck. You know, they're doing everything they should in therapy, but it, it's like there's this wall that they just can't get by. Mm-hmm. And that's that unrecognized brain injury. Yeah. Yeah. So if somebody does end up with a traumatic brain injury, what is the next step? What what resources are there for them is there any place that they can turn for support? Mm-hmm. It, it, yes. Um, uh, but the key is, like, finding those supports earlier the better. Um, so there are a number of, of formalized supports that I'll talk about in a second. But one of the the most accessible and most helpful supports it can be a brain injury support group. That is a great place to start because um, the world as a whole doesn't understand brain injury, mm-hmm. whether it's traumatic brain injury, stroke, maybe an injury from loss of oxygen to the brain. Um, that could be from a heart attack or near drowning or a drug overdose. I mean, there's so many different ways to end up with a brain injury. The world doesn't always understand it. And a lot of times the person looks fine. It's like, you know, at that, that car wreck was six months ago. What, you know, you look fine, you're walking around fine. Um, but the person may be having some really intense issues. Mm-hmm. Um, walking into a brain injury support group, you're automatically with folks that get it, you know. And, um, and that also is a great source of information about more formal supports out there. People kind of say, well, you know, I went through this program and it really helped. Um, uh, it, it's a great way to find online resources to help uh, educate yourself. Having good information can be uh, like a lifesaver for folks. Um, so brain injury support groups, and you can find a listing of those. Uh, we have a Brain Injury Association of Indiana here mm-hmm. in the state, and they have a listing of all the brain injury support groups around the state. Now, interestingly, when COVID hit, a lot of the groups went to a virtual format, and some have retained that. Some do a bit of a hybrid. So that opens it up to folks that may not live close to mm-hmm. brain injury support group. We've got one here in Bloomington, which is just phenomenal. Um, there are a few others in southern Indiana, uh, several up in Indianapolis. But, you know, if if you can't make it in person, there are online options. There's also, for a lot of the brain injury support groups, uh, those are attended by the person with the brain injury and their family members are welcome to come. Right. Uh, there is an online 
support group for families uh, that's statewide. Um, it meets once a month and uh, is extremely helpful for people. Uh, you know, it's about finding uh, ways to get through this together. And so I highly recommend those. Now, formal uh, services that can help. Um, getting in with a good speech therapist. Now, they're called speech therapists or speech and language pathologists. They do so much more than speech. Uh, they're really doing cognitive rehabilitation therapies that are about getting, you know, doing some exercises to help the brain and say, oh, I better build that detour around the, the damaged area. Um, but then it's also teaching folks strategies for how to keep track of their schedule and setting up reminders and what works for you. And the speech therapists are phenomenal at coming up with strategies. Um, so uh, that is huge. Um, getting an evaluation to know exactly how this brain injury is affecting you. You might have some some pretty good clues, but so let's say you know you're experiencing memory issues. You can't remember stuff. Well, we don't know whether that's actually damage in your memory storage system, okay, or is it damage in your retrieval system? You can get stuff into storage, but you can't retrieve it when you need to. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's the, really an attention issue. Your memory system works fine, but you're not paying attention enough to get it in there. Right. Or maybe your attention's great, your memory storage is great, your retrieval's great, but you have difficulty processing what people are saying to you. So you're not going to store it in any usable fashion because you can't process it fast enough. I, I might be, you know, three sentences ahead sentences ahead of what you're processing as I'm speaking. And so that looks like a memory issue. So it's important to figure out what the issue is before you can address it. Mm -hmm. um, strategies are going to be different. So getting an evaluation, that's usually done, you can get a full neuropsychological evaluation from a neuropsychologist. Now, that's different than a psychological evaluation that's looking at depression and anxiety and sorting that through. This is testing every facet of your cognitive functioning. Um, and by the time you're done, at the end of the day, you're going to be worn out because, boy, they really, they kind of push your brain to its max to mm -hmm. see exactly where the trouble spots are and where the strengths are. That can be invaluable information, and that can shape the therapies that come next. Mm -hmm. um, going into a good uh, a speech therapist, though, they can do some basic assessments to at least get started, okay? Yeah. Um, and then there's supports for getting back to work. Uh, there's uh, Indiana Vocational Rehabilitation, which mm -hmm. is a state agency that works with people with all kinds of disabling conditions, uh, anything that interferes with a person being able to hold down a job. Uh, so it could be, you know, a physical disability. It could be an autism spectrum disorder. Uh, it could be a substance use disorder, um, a mental health issue. Brain injury definitely fits into this. And mm -hmm. so uh, my program, which is called Resource Facilitation, works with Indiana Vocational Rehab 
Um, we are kind of the brain injury experts. And so when Voc Rehab has a client with a brain injury, they might send them to us for that evaluation. And then we might work on going with that person to help them put all those recommendations that came from the eval into place. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. So there are definitely, you know, some options out there that can help. Good. I'm so glad that we had you on the show today because I know that there is somebody who's going to be listening that has a loved one with a traumatic brain injury or has experienced it themselves. And I think you've given us some really valuable insights and resources. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to be able to get that information out there. And, you know, I will just say, as we've talked about all the hard parts of having a brain injury uh, and Nobody ever would choose to have a brain injury, okay, even in hindsight. But I just want to put out there that I have seen people um, figure out how to live with this injury and have found that it challenges them to develop um, in ways that they didn't expect. And uh, one person said, you know, before my brain injury, I was so busy with work and everything else I was doing. Brain injury forced me to slow down, and I'm actually spending more time with my kids, you know. Um, or, you know, f- figuring out who's the core of you when maybe you're not able to get back to work right away. And, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it forces couples to figure out how to communicate um, in in meaningful ways. So, I guess I just want to put out there that, you know, with the right supports and education and, you know, um, therapies, you know, life isn't over after a brain injury. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that feels like such a theme that's run through our show so mm-hmm. far. Mm-hmm. You know, we've interviewed people who've been through some really tough things, but mm-hmm. oftentimes uh, in these interviews, people will say, you know, I wouldn't, I would never choose to have this happen to me. And yet, you know, being stopped in my tracks by this thing and mm-hmm. having my life completely upturned created some positive changes too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So just keeping your eyes open for those and being open to it. Yeah. Yeah. When I was recovering uh, from Lyme disease, I, I called that celebrating the small victories. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, Jean, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure having you here. Thanks so much, Mirabai. Badass would not be possible without the support of several people who have donated their skills to the show. First of all, Kevin Evans, who has volunteered his time recording and editing the show. Thank you, Kevin. Another big thanks to Austin Lucas and his record label Last Chance Records for allowing us the use of his original music. In addition, we would like to thank Kate Long and her band, Rodeola, for the use of their original music. Finally, a big thanks to the badass team's life partners, Alex and Amy, who have made do without us on weekends and evenings as we have been holed up working on the show.